Hey, podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable, location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. Happy Thursday morning, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. Boss Man, this is an afternoon recording. Your energy levels look declining. What have you been up to all day? I can't say you look like you have a pep in your step right now. There's only one thing that I get up early for at, these, at this point, Dan. <laughs> no, well, I take it back. Now there's two things. Number one, Breakfast racing. tacos. Breakfast tacos. That's one and a half. <laughs> Number two, DC scale. <laughs> <laughs> that's right, because a lot of our clients for DC scale are based in Asia. How's it going? I was up very early today. We're doing onboarding calls. And I've just been really enjoying talking to everybody about their businesses. Sort of say like, Listeners of this podcast, members of the DC, like they have impressive businesses. Oftentimes, like their businesses are helping them reach their lifestyle goals. Oftentimes, they're employing several people, oftentimes into the millions in revenue. So, really fun getting to know a bunch of people, Dan, intimately, and their biggest business challenges. Yeah, super exciting. Speaking of getting up early, yesterday morning, the whole team was energized around the launch of DC Mexico. We just inked the contract with our hotel. It's a new tradition we're trying to cook up here in the community is to go to Mexico in April. And that tradition seems to be going along really strongly. This will be our third event in Mexico. Every event host knows like the major anxiety is like, will people come to the party? Like, are people going to actually come? And it seems like there's strong demand for Mexico City event in April. So that's exciting. So Dan, what are the dates for that? It's going to be April 21st to the 23rd. I'm looking forward to uh, getting on my uh, after New Year's diet so then I can go pig out in Mexico City. That's my totally. plan. One other thing I wanted to mention at the top is one of our grand ambitions for the new year is to continue to grow the podcast and specifically to do more, you know, Dan and Ian episodes with more writing, more responses to your emails. And I just want to thank you guys for coming along for the ride this year, for sending us emails that are incredibly thoughtful and inspiring. And personally, in my excitement about this topic area, seven-figure lifestyle business, seven and eight-figure lifestyle businesses just continues to grow. And it's just, it's cool now that one of the things I really am excited about scale is just to have that hands-on front row seat to all these case studies of all these amazing lifestyle businesses to really try to pull out themes, lessons, data points, just interesting thought nuggets out of that experience. And I'm looking forward to how it shows up on the pod in 2023. I can give you one little insight that I thought was interesting, Dan, talking to everybody is uh, how protective people are over their lifestyle and how like aware they are over their lifestyle. I think it's like really cool to be sitting at a six or seven figure business and be like, you know, I'm working like 20 hours a week. I'm making like great net margins and I really like where my life is at. (laughs) And uh, that's such a weird thing to say on most of the internet these days, right? Like if it isn't like going to the moon, if you haven't taken funding, if you don't have investors, you have no story. But the truth is the story of the people that are trying to protect their lifestyle, that have an interest in how they spend their time, they're hanging out here. Yeah. I'm reading a really interesting biography right now of John D. Rockefeller. The I'm going back to the source, boss man, of the Rockefeller habits 
of scaling up into DC scale, all this stuff. I want to know what the man himself had to say about this. There's something deeply American about more, 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 more. And you can be critiqued for not wanting to do more all the time. And so I do think it's cool that just because you're interested in in high quality business information, high quality business practices, making a well-oiled machine, it doesn't mean that it's always in the service of more, more, more. In fact, more might mean more time with your family or more time to pick up a hobby or more time to get on an airplane and go somewhere cool. Already in any parting shots here before we get moving on with the episode? Happy New Year. See y'all in 2023. So our tradition here at the TMBA pod at the end of every year is to do a compilation episode where we share some of our favorite moments from the year, as well as some emerging themes that we think are important. So some standout themes of this year have been systematizing businesses as they grow, focusing on the things that matter and the importance of being in control of a lifestyle that fulfills you. All of that coming up. But let's start with the end game, financial independence. Many of us started out as hustlers trying to make the rent. A lot of listeners of this show have involved into big league investors or folks who have experienced incredible exits or impressive life-changing cash flows. And there are few more articulate, astute, and informed voices about that than former Goldman Sachs staffer the voice behind Financial Samurai, Sam Dogan, who this year published a great book titled, Buy This, Not That. I wrote this book because I, I'm quoting you. I wrote this book because I don't see personal financial books written by people with finance backgrounds who are also living what they recommend. Why? That was like the big aha moment for me in 2008 and 2009. There's nobody with a finance background writing about personal finance. So I said, oh, you know what? I'll fill that hole. Why not? It's a new perspective. And then 13 years later, I still don't see that many people with finance backgrounds writing about finance or personal finance. You've got doctors, you've got engineers, you've got SEO, marketing people. There must be a reason. Are they too busy swimming in cash somewhere to... Maybe that's the thing. Maybe it's like right brain and left brain. So maybe if you're, you have a money brain, that's right or left, technical brain. And then the writing process is a creative side. It takes a lot of introspection and creativity. And definitely there are people who are like, why bother writing about personal finance and helping people and all that when I can just focus on my own way to make money. You're just, I'm, you're just too busy trying to make money for yourself. So maybe it is a special skill set. I don't know. To be a good investor and to be a good writer and tell some good stories. There's some normative quality to what you believe most people should be doing with their money. Like you'll say things like, hey, when you're 40, you're like this far done with your life and get real guy. Like you're you're almost halfway done here. You ought to be thinking about things like your primary residence. You ought to be thinking about educating your children. And I think that's really cool. And I'm curious, you go into depth about the cost of education. And I noticed a lot of American parents that are flexible financially and location-wise, considering alternative options in the past five years, they're thinking about educating their children in Europe, in international schools, in Montessori kind of stuff, in collectivized things. What do you think's going on? I guess in Texas in particular, we've had a lot of school shootings and their parents are just seeking different solutions. What do you make of all this? I think it's really rational that if you don't find an ideal solution, you keep on looking. Our ideal solution in 2020 was to homeschool and in 2021. 
eventually we thought we decided to put him in a language immersion school because we thought learning a language while young would be really nice to know 20 years down the road when you're older. I just think parents, we have this steady state anxiety for the well-being of our children. We want the best for them. We would spend any amount of money to make them happy, to fulfill them with joy and purpose. But at the same time, if we are not super rich already, the time and money we spend on them takes away from our own financial security and happiness. It's quite a balance and it's, there's a challenge. And I'm at the, in the viewpoint that your child the best, every child is different. Every household is different. Figure out what works for you. And most of all, make them feel loved and safe. You write about, despite your ability to be frugal in the personal finance space, we are urged to budget, avoid consumer debt, stash an emergency fund, all this kind of stuff. But to achieve financial freedom, we need to know how to spend our money in ways that build wealth. Now, this is where most financial advice falls flat. I wrote a polemic about this industry. I was taking issue with something that Mr. Money Mustache said many years ago. And I essentially said, you guys are all missing the point if you're not willing to talk about how to make money, because that's really where the magic happens. And it seems that's something we agree on. I'm curious as to why you believe that saving isn't enough. First of all, you can only save so much, but the income is unlimited, right? Building a business, generating revenue, earning money is unlimited. And this was actually one of the epiphanies I had while writing the book, because I've always wondered, okay, why don't people, more personal finance writers, more authors talk about making more money, leveraging your money, building a business, investing, whatnot, so you can have such unlimited potential upside. And the realization I had goes back to why I started Financial Samurai in the first place in 2009. It's hard to talk about investing and making more money in a business and all that if you don't have a finance background. But it's much easier to talk about budgeting and saving and investing in index funds if you have no finance background. And so what I've discovered from my friends who are actually, some of my friends who are extremely wealthy is that hey, the way they built wealth was through investing aggressively, investing in things other than index funds and building a business. It's very hard to get rich in a faster than normal fashion than just investing in index funds and just budgeting and saving. Totally. I think the concept that you have to change your career or upgrade your career or start a side hustle, that's beyond the personal finance blog they're writing. It's challenging and intimidating. You can feel the resistance almost to it quite a bit. And I understand that. Like, the idea that you're going to grow a vegetable garden to financial <laughs> success and keep your everything else yeah. the same, it has more appeal to more people, I think, than, hey, continual lifelong learning. Let's go out there and change your career, build a side hustle. That's a harder message to hear for a lot of people. Yeah, I mean, the natural action is to do nothing or just chill and coast, right? But as the saying goes, if you're coasting, you're going downhill. And it also depends on your personality. I have a competitive personality. I like a challenge and try to grow things. I was like, okay, let's try to 1 million if you're from your career, 1 million from real estate, 1 million from stock investing. These are fun challenges. And the worst that happens is that you don't succeed. Yeah, who cares? You are going to regret more of the things you don't do than the things you try. Sam Dogan. Next up, someone whose trajectory I've watched grow through his generous posts in our online forum, The DC. Justin Tan started his productized video editing business, Video Husky, 
only four years ago today after listening to an episode of this podcast, and he's already effectively retired from that business, leaving the team to run the day-to-day, but not without some bumps along the way, which he very coolly shared on this pod. August 10th, 2018, we had six customers and three editors. By September 30th, 2019, we had reached that hollowed $83,000 a month MRR. Everybody knows what we're talking about. Worked with hundreds of customers and dozens of editors. How do you think through the operational side of supporting the customers? You're selling, selling, selling. It's like, oh my gosh, now we got to turn around and get more editors to deliver, deliver, deliver. Yeah, there was no thinking. That caused me all kinds of problems later on. But at the time, I still thought like a marketer and it very much was, all right, our method of growth was to get more customers on board. I have a lot of regret over how that phase of the business could have been handled. Because at the time, I think I personally managed all the editors up until we had seven or eight. And then I took our most experienced editor. I made him a, actually call them pod heads. And we ended up building out a pod model. So I think every six to nine editors formed one pod. And so that kind of scaled out over time. And so many different people had recommended to me to get an operations manager on board. And I don't know why I was so hell-bent on not paying that cost. And maybe that was a problem. I thought of it as a cost as opposed to an investment in the future. And so over that period of time, organizational debt builds up. We have different kinds of customers which require different kinds of editors, which means our hiring pool got broadened, which means there's a bigger level of variability in our quality of editors. Because even if they're all great editors, they might be great at different things. And then being able to match those up becomes harder and harder because you want your best, let's say, talking head video editor to be matched with a talking head video creator, not somebody who's doing real estate videos, for example. But I was focused on the short-term gain as opposed to what mattered in the long run. Your next chapter heading, 30 to 50 plus staff, how a Zoom full of angry staff taught me my biggest leadership lesson. Originally, we had set out the holiday policy the way that I like to do holidays, which is I personally quite dislike public holidays. They're busy. It's hard to go anywhere. You have to book restaurants, even locally. If you want to fly, everything is two times more expensive. So I came up in the very beginning of Videoski's like iterations with a holiday policy where it's just like, here's a set number of days that you can take off. It's more than the average worker. Just take them off whenever you want to. And that worked when you have six people on your team and you just coordinate around it when you get to 40 plus and it turns out everybody is saving up their leave for Christmas. Something that's important in the Philippines. You realize, oh, wait a second, this is actually not going to work. And then you have to start denying leaves. And that caused all kinds of problems. The anger that broke out after was vitriolic. Nobody talked to me personally about it. Why do you think they didn't feel comfortable reaching out to you? I think there's something to be said about like the advantages of remote work. You get to be in your own place, get to be in your own time. But it also becomes really easy to not sense the mood of the room. And at that point, we had already had, I think, like three layers of management in place. So even at that point, I might speak to a new editor for when they first come on board, but I have no regular ongoing relationship in terms of a regular call with every single editor. And so I couldn't get enough of a sense of what that might feel like. I guess it was much later on. There are a few staff only chat rooms, which that makes sense. A couple of the early hires from middle management who, I guess, who I had a better relationship with, who trusted me, said, Justin, you really need to see this. And it was talking about how 
by like I had set a promise, which is you can take leaves over the days that you choose. And I was now breaking that promise, which is 100% true. One of the key benefits that I guess I didn't realize, but of course, looking back, it's obvious for our staff to work at Videohoski was that work-life balance. And part of that is, of course, holidays. And so by not understanding what's important to our staff, that caused me all kinds of issues because I just overlaid my perspective and how I want to do things to everybody versus understanding how things could work out better. It sounds like your new holiday policies worked out great. Yeah. So the way that played out was after, I think, reading a few of the chat messages in those groups, we sat down, we had a nice big company-wide Zoom call. Did you wear a Grinch outfit and like take it off oh. ceremoniously? Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> Christmas I, is back. <laughs> I wish, but I imagine that nobody would, would have found the joke funny at that point. You know? <laughs> but yeah, we just sat down and I think the first thing was listening. And so I think hearing, after hearing 20 people talk about the importance of the leave policy of Christmas, especially, it does hit home. We instituted what we now call the December break. So we have five days, Monday to Friday, we pick the week, depending on the year. And then when you tack on the weekend before and after, it ends up being a nice nine day stretch where there is no work. We shut the entire company down. And I was scared shitless over messaging this out to customers. It was like, yeah, just heads up. We're not working this week. We're still expecting you to pay. So yeah, just, yeah, let's see how that goes. And as it turns out, it went great. I think this was the beginning of many lessons. Of, oh, wait a second. I am not always right. In fact, I am wrong many, many, many times. Big shout out to Justin Tan. Hopefully we can get more of Justin Tan's thoughts and ideas on this pod in the future. Now, one of the things that's been a major trend on this show is that location-independent businesses are becoming more desirable to those who might not even consider getting involved in them a decade ago. And that goes for the desirability of the people that have the experience running them too. So it made sense to me when it turns out that one of the members of our community was approached by a private equity firm to turn around an investment they made. They saw his experience as a bootstrap founder as relevant to being a CEO of a large company. That person was Jason Long, who also shared his amazing story at DCBKK this year. Let's talk management. There was a moment that jumped out during your speech for me. It's showing how to implement traction or different elements of Gino Wickham's framework. And you critiqued a few elements of his framework in such a way that only someone with a very strong understanding of the system could. And for me, with a more cursory understanding and having not implemented it fully, that really jumped off the page to me. If we didn't put in place a system to drive the company forward, it was going to fail very quickly. This company was six months away from failure, from completely falling apart. It took the implementation of a system like this to make that happen. And I was very fortunate that I had done this multiple times in previous businesses that I owned. And I had done it with limited success previously, only because I wasn't dedicated to really making it work. Was that because it didn't matter that much before or? Yeah, exactly. Now, like all of these people's jobs were on the line. This entire company was on the line. What I did to pull this together is I read that book over and over and over again. I probably read that book like five times. And I had to put together a presentation to take the team through it. And we had to do it very quickly as well. So I spent, 
don't know, maybe three or four days build, building a presentation to walk everybody through it. How did the team feel about this implementation? There was some hesitancy to begin with. This is a team that had been passed from CEO to CEO, from leader to leader, who just had failed them over and over and over again. I, I was actually the sixth, the fifth or the sixth, I think sixth CEO wow. in five years for this team. Every time a new CEO came in, they would chop some heads, they would make some changes, they would move things around and then really, I think, not accomplish very much. And so when I came in, I said, I'm not going to fire anybody. Nothing is planned for that. And I presented the company back to the team as to how they were doing. And I brought in a lot of methods to make sure that there was transparency with the top level all the way down to the frontline workers, including this week meeting where I present everything that happened this week at the company and anybody can ask any question they want about what's going on in the business. And it was an optional meeting for anybody in the company to join. And it was recorded and sent out to everybody. So everybody felt like they were knowledgeable about where the company was going. And I felt like that made a huge difference in the trust within the business. What does it take to turn around a company? Being able to identify the problems, prioritize those problems in order, make the hard decisions that will solve those problems and continue to iterate on that process. You're in a unique position in that you're in both sides of the aisle now. You've both worn the t-shirt and the button up and you have an incredible breadth of experience. When you look at the entrepreneurial community, what do you feel a passion for that we should take away from the capital managers, the executives, the, the professionals that work at companies with a high degree of transparency to the financial markets? So in other words, more traditional, larger companies. And then the other way too, what do you feel passionate that the folks that are professionalized capital managers and business executives, what do you hope that they could take away from the entrepreneurial community? The first thing I would say is that there's not actually that much a difference. The entrepreneurs, I would say that if you're going to manage a bigger business and you're going to make it excel, you have to step up your level of sophistication and management in a lot of ways. Like I said, the CEO still needs the vision. That doesn't change. But your ability to execute on that vision has to be at a higher level. For the capital managers, I think that they have a lot to learn in the way we live our lives. You've got people in the D.C., that are running 50, 60, 100, $200 million per year businesses, traveling around the world, wearing a t-shirt, go into a rooftop party. There's a lot of guys that go into work every day, dress in a suit and tie, that don't believe that that's even possible for them. It's absolutely 100% possible for them if they're willing to make the mindset change. As founders of remote companies, we all face hiring challenges, like hiring today instead of next week or next quarter, scaling our teams quickly, and even just defining what we want in a candidate, where to find them, how much to pay them, and how to recruit them. There's a lot of questions. Hiring's complicated, but it doesn't need to be with RemoteFirstRecruiting.com. It's a service from our team where we help founders like you solve these hiring hangups. Even if you're not hiring today, you got to take advantage of our 15-minute free strategy call. It's with our senior recruiter, Greg Valentine. He's not a sales guy. He's a senior recruiter, industry expert, and he's helped place hundreds of remote candidates and companies just like yours. 
He can discuss with you the patterns we're seeing in the marketplace, share with you case studies, and talk about how you can build a rock-solid hiring strategy. Hiring doesn't need to be hard. Let our team do the heavy lifting. TMBA listeners, take advantage of this strategy call. It's a simple way to grow a better business. So head on over to our site, remotefirstrecruiting.com, where we believe hiring the right talent is the best way to grow a great remote business. Schedule a call with our team today at remotefirstrecruiting.com. Now, it's no secret that Ian and I have been opening ourselves up to more coaching this year than ever. It's a field we've been sometimes a little meh about on the show. Maybe next year, we need to do a retrospective and deep dive into the business coaching industry. Um, I'm just curious about it. I've had lots of meh experiences and lots of amazing experiences. You know, what's changed? Have we changed? Has the industry changed? Maybe a bit of both. It's probably worth a little introspection. But what's definitely something that's happening is I'm getting acquainted with a lot of amazing people that are sharing their knowledge via coaching that are really impressive to me. And that is most definitely the case with Eamon Al-Abdullah, former CEO of AppSumo. You know, I have this like to-do list when I walk away from our our meetings. And the first one was the avatar, Mm. which... I came up with enterprising Ethan, and and it's really galvanized some conversation in our company. I'm wondering if you can describe the importance of the avatar and at what phase uh, this is at most critical. Yeah, it's funny. You you and I were talking about the triad, the person, product, and promotion. And I tell people all the time, if, if you don't have an ideal client, if you don't have that ideal person, then you're creating a product for everybody. And that's kind of like writing a love letter and addressing it to whom it may concern. It's not going to captivate the hearts and minds of anyone. And so the more that you can get super specific with who are you writing this love letter to, who are you building this product for, the better your product innovation will be. And I'll give you an example. At AppSumo, when I joined, we were doing everything under the sun. We were doing courses, ebooks, software, uh, templates, fonts, everything. And we took a step back and then we go, who are we really building for? Who's our ideal client? And one thing that became crystal clear to us was... There was this one subset of customers that was number one. I think the first thing you need to ask is who has the potential to be the most profitable customer for us? And I think profitable is really an important question because it answers several things. Number one, who's the most likely to purchase from you multiple times? Who's the most likely to refer you more customers? Who's not going to be a pain in the ass to your customer support team? Who are you pumped about and excited to serve? And then more importantly, who can be a great evangelist for your brand? And for us, when we looked through our, our customer cohorts, there was one particular segment, marketing agency, Matt. This is a, he's running a seven-figure agency. He's buying AppSumo deals on behalf of his non-tech savvy clients. And so he's purchasing several licenses to serve his clients. And because of that, he finds immense value in the AppSumo brand. And so for us, we were like, well, what does marketing agency Matt do? He basically charges a monthly retainer to his clients and then gives them marketing advice and just more and more marketing help. And so the more that we could double down on marketing software tools specifically, particularly lifetime software tools, because marketing agency Matt's revenue was up and down every month. And so if he could keep his costs fixed, if he could pay one time and never have to worry about those costs again, he could have more control over his business. Just by by making that one decision, Dan, by focusing on marketing agency Matt, we were able to triple our customer lifetime value 
And when you think about it, when you triple your customer lifetime value, you can't help but triple your revenue. Was that the most important exercise? No, no. The unfortunate truth is that the business changes every time the business doubles. I typically say like when you're at 1 million, then if you're at 3 million, then you're at 6 million, then you're at 12 million. Those tend to be the inflection points for the business. Walk us through those. That's really fascinating. Yeah. At 1.2 million is typically when process is super critical. That's typically when you're starting to hit the upper limits of the business and you need to unpack what is the process that we put in place in order to make money. At around 3 million is when you need to start focusing on people. And the reason I bring these up is it's a little earlier than most companies need it, but I think it's important because it takes time to learn the recruiting. At 6 million is when you're typically focusing on your plan. And then at 12 million is when you really need to nail down performance. At each of these stages, it's more and more critical. The way I equate it is you're building the foundations for your skyscraper. And the deeper the foundations go, the higher the skyscraper can go. Very high class inspiration from Eamon there. And yeah, I mean, my sessions with him have been amazing. I sit down afterwards and I do the work he tells me to do and it makes a difference and I get it. Thank you, Eamon, for showing me the way. Now, let's not forget that the reason most of us are creating online businesses in the first place is due to the opportunities that they afford us to create the lives we want now and in the future, rather than maybe a more traditional path of work your way up the employee ladder for 30 plus years. There are, of course, other lifestyle philosophies or scripts that have pushed back against that too. One is FIRE, financial independence, retire early. There's actually a lot of crossover in, in the thinking there. But as the world started coming back to work in the office following COVID, another movement started gaining traction on the interwebs and especially on Reddit where the anti-work subreddit group whose slogan is, get this, unemployment for all, not just the rich, has reached over 1.7 million subscribers. Undaunted, the boss man and I enter the fray with our thoughts. So the argument can be distilled, I think, roughly like this. The first part, Ian, is outsourcing is taking admin level people out of decent pay and benefits for jobs in the United States. We hear this kind of argument from politicians all the time about honest factory work, which has been sent overseas. It's basically coming for the rest of us, right? What happened where I grew up, which is a manufacturing center, you could see that these jobs are going away. They're going to China. They're going to Mexico. And now you thought because you got a college degree and you wear a white collar to a desk, it wasn't going to happen to you. But as Taylor Pearson predicted in his book, The End of Jobs, 10 years ago, that if you think it's not coming for you too, and he's talking about white collar workers, what's your take on this argument? A lot of times these companies, they don't have a choice. Like if you want to stay competitive, you have to figure out a way um, to stay competitive. And if all, all your competitors are manufacturing in China, we went through this, Dan, in our last business, like you have to be manufacturing in China or else you don't make a profit, you don't have a business, you don't pay your 10 or 20 people, whatever it is, like you cease to exist. And then all of that benefit of having that business, whether it's for the employees or the owners, disappears. So there's a certain level of you have to respond to the market. And if everyone is outsourcing uh, to the Philippines or places like that, like you have to figure out a way to write a script and some software, to go to the Philippines, to convince people to do it for less, like whatever it is, like you will not be in business if you don't respond to your competitors. In a lot of ways, I'm like sympathetic to the companies here because a lot of times you don't have choice. And then on like the person side, the employees, I'm also sympathetic to them because 
essentially, um, they've opted into a script at a certain point of their life. A lot of times they took out a lot of loans to do that, to go to college, get an education. They were promised this opportunity to sit, to not compete, live their life, to purchase. And the argument is decent. This kind of, there's a decency to the idea that you can use your education, go to a company, be treated well, and have your health care and your wage and live a good life. And now that's getting yanked out from underneath them. And I think a lot of the reasons why that's happening is capitalism. For better or worse, like it is this industrial complex. It's not necessarily evil people. It's not necessarily greedy people, although like I do think that the system kind of skews towards greed, but it is just a factor of the system. This is going to continue to happen. And I think on a broader spectrum, looking to our governments, looking to our institutions, looking to our politicians, they're so far behind this stuff. Look at how far behind they are on like something like crypto, you know, that they could benefit from immensely. Like there's hardly any policies in place. So to think that um, your government or your politicians or whatnot are going to like save you from this situation, it's not going to happen. So that's actually one of the tones of my like overall responses is like, Anti-work's an awesome community, it seems like. It's interesting content and things. But also don't get hung up that like this anti-work thing's gonna save you. You wrote down this thing, but it's like socialist in the streets, libertarian in the sheets. This idea that like, yeah, like I'm all on board with like making like getting decent wages, society's better. But like, man, when you get home, you gotta hustle and like take care of yourself because the people on anti-work rallying and the freaking petition you sign and the marching and stuff that's not going to cut it for your family, for your destiny. So one of the main thrusts of the anti-work movement seems to be a totally valid quest to earn enough to live a decent life that keeps pace with the rising costs in the West. While many previously, like we'd call them safe or local jobs are being outsourced to lower income countries. Now for our last clip of the year, we're going to return to an interview with Jesse Schoberg that offered a potential third way, which would be pretty familiar to regular listeners of the pod. And that show was titled, Going Viral for Saying, I Live Better in Thailand Than I Did in the US. I'll read some of the top YouTube comments. What, making 230K and living in a place with a lower cost of living in the United States and liking it? I'm shocked. To those who say he's spending too much, not all digital nomads are poor. This guy's a high earner. And by spending a few thousand, he's living a lifestyle that would typically be accessible only to multi-millionaires in the US and Europe. That is a theme of this show. And then someone weighs in to say, basically, for anybody who's deterred by how much Jesse makes, it's actually much more accessible. You don't need to make that much to live in Bangkok. These responses and responses like, hey, how do you do it, man? They're pretty stock. What are some of the more surprising responses you've had? The surprising slash kind of negative one is there's a lot of people that were like, oh, for $8,000 a month, you can live anywhere like that. And it's like, clearly none of these people have lived, quote, anywhere. <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, you just like a city that that hits like Bangkok is very expensive to live at the top tier. Right. And so that's kind of the theme that I feel like a lot of people missed. And it's like, no, you cannot live like we live here in New York, which is an equivalent city for $8,000 a month. And then, of course, something I wouldn't say super surprising, but a lot of expats that are like, oh, well, of course, you can live here for like $500 a month, and I can't believe you spend that on rent or whatever. And you know, you should be saving 
A lot of people seem to miss the salary versus the spend yeah. differential. <laughs> like, oh, well, if you're making 8000 it's like, well, no, like that's still like, we still have a lot of margin there. So I too went backpacking in Asia in 2001 and it changed my life and meeting backpackers changed my life. And it's a culture. It's a tribe. And there's a strong ethos in this original gangster community that finding ways to spend less in places like Thailand was in fact the game itself. Why? Because both crowds, these retired expats and the backpackers are on fixed income. The retiree doesn't want to outlive their money, which is a real concern. And the backpacker wants to extend their adventure. But also there's a gamesmanship and a signaling to it which is that one of the best ways to demonstrate you know the game is to find a way to pay local prices. And so they'll identify people like Jesse to spend shame because they're worried about the prices getting drived up. But what you've demonstrated and why I'm so passionate about it, Jesse, is I'm in your mold. Like I was one of the first folks in this region with like completely mobile income that was beyond the regional income. And I remember marveling at it and hearing these conversations, this tribe talk about the one-upsmanship. I think the idea of like searching for value though, Jesse, which is essentially what it feels like you're doing is like you found an enormous value here in Bangkok for the amount of income that you're making, meaning your dollar really stretches far here and you appreciate the lifestyle. And it seems like from what you were telling me was like the local response has been actually really positive. When it was going pretty big here, basically a couple of people had seen the video and then they covered it in some blog posts in Thai and then linked to the video. They basically like summarized the video and the article in Thai. And then one of the local TV stations called me up and said like, hey, can we come interview you? The YouTube video version of that interview had over 2 million views in two days. And so it just like went Boom. And a lot of Thais basically were impressed that you chose them, which I will say is a bit of a niche in PR in digital nomadism, <laughs> uh, which is like local pride marketing. Yeah. Some of the comments were pretty interesting to read. A lot of uh, local pride, just like, hey, I read the article, said he lived in 40 countries and you know he chose us. Thailand is a very special place and there's a reason why we keep coming back here and there's a reason why DCBKK is here and all that stuff because it's special, it's unique, it's a country that's winning and on the come up and that's exciting. Many thanks to Jesse and to all of our contributors and to you guys, our listeners. So of course, we'll link to all the shows mentioned in this episode show notes. Just click through on your phone and as always, We'd love to hear your thoughts about how this show can improve in 2023. But that's it for now. We'll see you next year. Same time, same place, Thursdays, 8 a.m. Eastern time. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.